This is Judaism Unbound, episode 19, Moisha House. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rovis. And we're here today with David Siegelman, who is the founder and CEO of Moisha House, which is one of the most successful and admired Jewish innovations to have come about in the last decade or so. David has been much lauded in the Jewish world. We're really excited to have you on the show today, David. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Good to be here. Tell us a little bit about what Moisha House is and what it's all about. Uh, at its core, Moisha House started, uh, yeah, 10 years ago as a way to engage young adults who uh, were finished with college but hadn't yet settled down. So 22 to 30-year-old is our core demographic. And the idea is really simple. We have three to five young adults who live in a home together. And in addition to their full-time jobs or graduate school, uh, they turn their home into essentially a community center, not just for themselves, but for their peers and friends of friends. Their houses turn into uh, a place to go for Shabbat dinners, for films, for discussions, for all sorts of activities, uh, one to two times a week. And um, it started off with one Moisha house in the East Bay in California, and then a second in San Francisco. And today there's 85 Moisha houses spanning 20 countries. So uh, that's Moisha house at its core. And then we Uh, over these 10 years, built out several other programs that have to do with Jewish education and content, learning retreats, and alumni programming through Moish House Without Walls, and uh, some other pieces we're experimenting with in the the coming year as well. You know, I remember, too, in the years before Moisha House came into being, and, and I think still, you know, there was in the Jewish community this kind of angst about the young people, the college students and the post-college students and how they were drifting away from Judaism and and what was going to happen and what was going to be done about it. And it's just so interesting that in this space that was kind of seen by the Jewish community as kind of a wasteland, all of a sudden this incredible thing has has sprung up. So I'm wondering, how did Moisha House get started? I mean, Moisha House got started, um, we got really lucky. We were fortunate. I met a, a person who wanted to do philanthropy uh, while I was in college. And he gave me a really unique opportunity to meet with him once a week and share ideas of things we could be doing in the Jewish community. And if he liked the idea, he would fund it. And if he didn't like the idea, he'd tell me no. And he only liked about 10% of the ideas. But about four years into spending time with him, Moisha House was one of those ideas. I had gone on a trip to Israel when I was in high school back in 1997 and formed these great friendships, these great bonds with other young Jews living in in the Bay Area. And when I went down to college in Santa Barbara, I got really involved in the Jewish community and then quickly found myself after college too old for Jewish life on campus and way too young for young adult programming, which was really averaging mid-30s to early 40s. So um, went and, and it started with just this idea of doing a potluck Shabbat dinner. Four of the people from our Israel trip had rented a house together in Oakland, so we figured we should use that space since we already had it. And uh, with some text messaging and emailing, 73 people showed up for Shabbat dinner, and that's that's really how it how it began. Well, um, I'm just thinking about having a funder like that and with a little bit of envy, but um, the. Um, <laughs> But the, well, um... it works well, Dan. I mean, it, 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 when it works, it works well. And, and 
you know, Morris, which was where Moisha, the name Moisha comes from, from Moisha House, um, you know, allowed us to operate the program out of his foundation for the first two and a half years, and he fully funded it. And and then you realize and you learn why that's not a great long-term model, because within two weeks, Moisha House went from fully funded as part of his foundation to actually having zero funding and not being part of his foundation anymore once once that was closing down and with the economic collapse. Yeah, I think that's so interesting. And, and I've uh, heard a little bit of that story from you in the past. I, I, tell us a little bit more about it. So at, at that time, two and a half years into it, how many Moisha houses were there? There were around 20 houses. We had, a, we had I think, four full-time people and, you know, a real operation going. Right. I mean, so you're already this really successful organization two and a half years in with 20 houses and four full-time staff. And then all of a sudden, you know, something happens with your funding and and all of a sudden you potentially have no funding. And, you know, I, I raise that only because I, I think that one of the things that we haven't really explored too much yet on the show, but is the kind of precariousness of, of the funding of innovation in general and, and I think in the Jewish community, right? Uh, because we're really talking particularly about innovations like Moisha House, which are coming out of the area in which there isn't a lot of funding, right? The sort of young people and realistically the most likely way for a project like that to get off the ground is to find some, you know, like you had one or a small number of funders who are really uh, visionary and see the potential of this. And then if something goes wrong in that funding, it potentially is such that the organization has to completely close down, uh, even if it was a great idea, right? Because I guess what you're saying, right, is that it could have gone either way. And I'd love to know how it went the good way, but it could have easily been that the innovation that we now know as Moisha House, this incredibly successful in 20 countries, 85 houses organization and growing, could have been completely closed if if things had gone a different way. So, So what did you do at that point? Yeah, and, and that was what we believed would happen. Our hypothesis was that it was going to close down. Uh, we were about a million-dollar-a-year budget by that point with around 20 houses and staff, and you know, didn't even, we didn't even have a bank account, let alone an entity. The goal was actually, initially, there was a sliver of hope to continue, but the, the real goal was, was to be able to let the folks who live in Moisha House get out of their leases. A lot of people in Moisha House are living in, in homes uh, that they can't afford without our share of the rent. And so um, the first thing we did was try to figure out what does it mean to be our own organization. So Google helped a lot with that. And uh, we learned about filing for tax exemption and, and filled out that paperwork. I asked uh, some of the folks who had been really super encouraging about the work we had been doing for the first two and a half years if they would join the board. I, I let them know it would probably be the shortest board term that they'd ever experienced, but um, we needed their names and, and their buy-in in order to, uh, to to join. And we had a few friends and, and supporters put in enough funds that we could last six weeks, but that was it. And then um, and an amazing thing happened. Uh, the Lynn Schusterman of the Charles and Lynn Schusterman Family Foundation she heard about what was happening and had known about Moisha House, and and she came to us and in a conversation, they gave or she gave funding for six months and said either this will give you an opportunity to close down more gracefully, or in in a in a perfect world you'd be able to find another six months of funding and continue to go. And so once we had that 
we really tried to see if we could find more and um and piece by piece we were we were able to until we got some larger grants as well from folks like the Jim Joseph Foundation and Righteous Persons and Leash Tag and, and others. So tell us a little bit about a little bit more about what Moisha House is and, and what it does and what it's done in, in a little more detail. And right now I want to focus mostly on, on your initial program, which was the the houses themselves and what went on in the houses themselves. I know it's grown and expanded since then. Um and so I, ju- I just want to you know underscore for our listeners who don't know that the basic model here is that these young adults rent a, a house together or an apartment together, and they receive a subsidy from Moisha House, a rent subsidy, and a budget for programming. And, um, and, and tell us about how that all works and, and then what they actually do. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and the rent subsidy and the program budget are proportional uh, to the number of programs they're doing in a month. So for houses in larger cities with more residents, you're looking at uh, a 75% rent subsidy. They, in addition to a rent subsidy of 75%, they also have a $500 a month program budget. And they're doing seven or more programs a month. There are four types of programs that every house has to be doing. So there are social, Jewish culture and uh, holidays, Jewish learning, and prepare the world. So we have... Uh, these young adults not only putting on the program, but also inviting their friends and friends of friends and creating the atmosphere out of their homes that that engage, you know, tens of thousands of people. And tell me a little bit about what these programs tend to be like. Do they tend to be traditional, non traditional, a mixture? The best part about the programs is that they take on the identity of the residents. So when you have um you know traditional uh folks living in the house, you see some traditional programming. When you, when you, when you don't, you don't. Uh, they all have to fall under these categories. So even Shabbat dinner, which is happening in all of the houses, can look incredibly different. You can go to a moisture house where uh, they actually have Friday night services and a kosher kitchen. And, and then you can go to another house where they do, you know, the basic blessings and everyone's going out afterwards together. It really takes on the identity of the three to five people living in the house. So I'm actually on the Moisha House website right now and, and looking at the the very long list of cities that you've alluded to. And what's what impresses me about it is um, you've got all the expected places covered. I mean, most national Jewish organizations, they cover New York City, L.A., Chicago, San Francisco, that kind of stuff. But there's just a really great mix of midsize and and even some smaller kinds of cities. And I'm wondering how you've been able to like what it is that has made those particular situations successful because so many national Jewish organizations um, either haven't really tried to reach those mid-sized and small communities or when they have, they haven't had a ton of success. So I'm curious about that. And, and maybe as, as an associated question, I know you have your awesome Moisha House Without Walls initiative, which I actually experienced myself when I was living in Jackson, Mississippi. And I'm curious if that's related to this question at all in terms of reaching smaller and mid-sized communities. Yeah, it is. And and it's true both in, in North America and internationally. You know, we, we have houses in London and Moscow and Paris, but there's also Moisha Houses in Prague and Habarovsk and, you know, cities cities throughout the world that that aren't typically thought of today as the central hubs of, of Jewish life. Look, I mean, all of the, any, any mid-sized city 
is going to have enough young Jewish adults that they're that creating community and building Jewish life is an opportunity. The other interesting thing is because of our model is uh, the largest line item in our budget is the rent subsidy. Uh, mid-sized cities actually provide a huge opportunity for us because the rents are so much less than a San Francisco, mm-hmm. a New York, mm-hmm. a, a D.C. or L.A. And so uh, we are very focused on ensuring that we're serving the needs of, of young adults in you know, Raleigh-Durham as much as we are in, in, in Washington, D.C. And, you know, it's it's actually... It's actually been pretty amazing to see um, the the turnout in those places. And Moish House Without Walls does play into that. Moish House Without Walls was originally created when we when we did our evaluation, uh, our our initial large scale evaluation in 2011. One of the key findings was that for people who living in Moisha House, once they move out, it was a it was a fairly stiff steep uh, cliff to fall off of. They went from having hundreds of people in their home running programs a couple times a week to, you know, maybe moving somewhere by themselves or with a significant other, or maybe with one friend and, and they had all these skills and networks, but, um, you know, it was, it was a, it was a, a slamming on of the brakes to some extent. And so what they were asking for was not a rent subsidy or things like that, but, um, basically a format and, um, support to run some programs. And so much else without walls allows, uh, originally was only for residents who moved out. They could r- lead up to two programs a month that were, uh, you know, continuing to build Jewish community and Jewish life. And and then what happened is um, we started allowing alumni of other programs to become eligible for Moish House Without Walls, including uh, learning retreats that we put on and some other um, from some other programs that do great work, like Pardes is a close partner in Urban Adama. So people who have gone through those programs can become eligible. And that's what we've also seen um, really spike Jewish life in, in places like Jackson, which you described, and, and other cities. In fact, Las Vegas and Raleigh-Durham, there were Moisha House Without Walls hosts who then got enough of a, of a following that they opened uh, Moisha Houses. So they, they have led into each other nicely. That's awesome. And I can say from that experience in Jackson that it, it was a huge game changer for us to just know that we had the ability for, uh, largely for us, it was holiday programming, um, but also some other social type things to, to just have that at our disposal was, was really amazing. Um, but let's, let's ask a hypothetical question. So uh, if there's anybody listening out there that's intrigued by some of these ideas. So let's say hypothetically, you are a Jew in the age cohort that Moesha House works with. Let's say you're, you're 25 and let's say you live in a, in a town that's not on the list of Moesha House. Like say Providence, Rhode Island or something. Just, you know, where, where a certain co-host of this show might live. What would a person like that do? if they wanted to experiment with with some Moisha House Without Walls possibilities? Yeah, well, first of all, we'd love to have you. Um, the, but the, the Hypothetic- idea, Hypothetically. <laughs> the idea is that um, there is some sort of a barrier to entry, that you can't just go online and sign up, but that we have a relationship with the, the host for Moisha House Without Walls. So we're, we're leading um, one to two immersive learning retreats um, a month all around the world that have very specific topics. Uh, for example, I'm going to one next month in Brussels. And um, about half of the people uh, going to those learning retreats are current residents, 
and then we also have some alumni and uh, future Moist House Without Walls hosts coming as well. And once you go on this three-day uh, learning retreat, then you become eligible to host Moist House Without Walls programming. Cool. I may hypothetically or or in reality look into that. I think you should hypothetically go to the one in Brussels. That sounds fun. <laughs> yeah. Again, I want to make sure that I'm remembering something correctly. But first, the learning retreats were a special thing that um, Moisha House residents could go to. And, and I would imagine, and I'm curious about whether this was the goal and whether this happened, that the sort of idea there is um, once we have all these houses creating Jewish programs, we want to try to deepen the, the substance of those Jewish programs. And, and a way to do that would be to invest in the residents of the house in their own Jewish knowledge or, or, or creativity and and the and I would imagine that's where the learning retreats initially came from. And and now it's so interesting to hear that essentially I think the learning retreats have expanded such that they're now open to to people that don't live in Moish houses. And actually the learning retreat experience is is what's leading in many cases to people starting to do Moish House programming, whether that's opening a house themselves or Moish House Without Walls programming, which is essentially Moish House programming not necessarily taking not not taking place in the subsidized apartment, right? I think that the narrative that you described is accurate for the learning retreats, but comes from a different perspective than when we initially started them, which the initial perspective was when we got our evaluation back, it was really clear that the majority of people living in and coming to Moisture House didn't grow up doing the things they're now leading or participating in Jewishly. So there was a real lack of confidence in creating experiences like Sukkot or Shabbat or Passover, Shavuot. So they were doing these programs because it's part of the Moish House model, but didn't have strong, strong confidence. And so what would happen is either the community of Moisha House would have one person who knew it well and everyone would just default to them, or they just wouldn't do it that well. And so... It was really out of uh, uh, looking at the evaluation and saying, okay, this is an issue here. A big finding was, for example, Sukkot. Like we learned a lot of people weren't building sukkahs because it cost $200 for just the building materials, the wood, the screws, the brackets, to build a, a sukkah. And the houses have 375 to $500 budgets. So it was actually a bad economical decision for them to build a sukkah if they have a $375 program budget. Over half of the budget for an entire month goes to, you know, wood and screws. And so we said, okay, what can we do there? And so now there are incentive grants to support things like up to $200 to reimburse for the cost of, of building a sukkah. And that came from the residents saying, hey, you know, we'd love to do this, but you have to understand that it's actually perfect. It hurts the rest of our programming if we build a sukkah, and that wasn't the dynamic we were trying to create. So we were able to go in there and, and, and change it. Another question that came to my mind as you were talking about the residents uh, not necessarily having so much Jewish knowledge or experience is, like, from your perspective, why is it that people are wanting to live in Moshe houses? You know, essentially, they're signing on to be kind of quasi-professional Jewish programmers, and they're not people who feel so confident about Jewish programming. And I'm curious, what, sociologically, or what are you finding in terms of why people are choosing to do this? I mean, it, it strikes me that these are the kind of people that 
before Moshe House came onto the scene, the Jewish community was sort of fretting about and, and imagining had no Jewish interest or certainly no capacity to be very active Jewish communal lay leaders. And yet here, that's exactly what they're doing. So what is the draw for them? And what is it? And then I would take it more broadly, sort of if you could sort of step back and reflect sociologically on what you think you've you've discovered or tapped into in doing Moshe House for 10 years, you know, that maybe the rest of the Jewish community doesn't fully understand. I'd be remiss to not mention or not point out, although I don't think it's the most important factor, is that there's a rent subsidy. And I think for a lot of young adults figuring out the beginning of their career path and things of that nature, uh, housing becomes uh, an important factor. But I actually, our, our data shows that it's not one of the top ones. Um, it's important, but but um, what, what I think we're tapping into is creating a Jewish life, Jewish learning, Jewish community in a setting that is already naturally happening for the population we're trying to serve. So that's to say that 22 to 30-year-olds are already wanting to live together. They're already wanting to create um, homes that are uh, conducive to having people over and uh, engaging in larger community and uh, participating in, in, in these kind of like social and, and spiritual activities. The issue is that um, at this time, they're not given the opportunity to lead them. And, and our study and evaluation has shown that even the, even the folks who we might look at as strong young Jewish leaders, less than 25% see themselves as leaders in the Jewish community. And, and what Moisterhouse does is it, is, is it says to them, listen, you guys are the leaders of the Jewish community, and we're not telling you that to pat you on your back. We're actually telling you that because you're in charge. I'm just thinking about this from like a broader communal perspective because I'm curious um, in your experience how Moisha House has related to, you know, the rest of the cities that they're located. And I'm sure it's different on a case-by-case basis. But, you know, as I look at this, um, once again, I've only lived in cities that don't have a Moisha house. But I'm sort of imagining that there's a few great things that happen once a Moisha house is in a city. One is what you described. You have residents living in a house, thinking about living Jewishly at least seven times a month. You've got all of the people who come to the programs, maybe not seven times a month, but, you know, once or twice a month or however much, um, which is great for them if they're the, the kind of Jews who don't want to plan everything but but might be interested in participating. But then there's the broader question of the community. And it seems like having a Moisha house would inherently mean that other communal organizations who have been fretting, as we've talked about, about the sort of young Jewish group, they can sort of rest easy a little bit. It's not that they stop trying to reach those people, but they know that there's a really awesome organization filling that need and they can really hone in on whether it's young families or, you know, senior citizens or whatever other demographics. Do you see that happening or do you experience more resistance from community organizations or is it a, a good partnership? Uh, not not too much resistance, but but I do think that that there's there's some who fall into the category exactly as you just described, but then there's some also who I think more worried about their organization's growth and survival than they are for the Jewish people's or Jewish community's growth and survival. So even if there's a whole population 
of young people getting involved Jewishly if they're not getting involved Jewishly the way they want them to get involved Jewishly, they're still just as as worried and concerned. I guess my question falls into the kind of what's next category on, on two levels. Number one, if you could, I don't know if it's premature, if you already have a sense of kind of what comes next for Moisha House residents, you know, where, to what extent, you know, to the extent that the anxiety of the Jewish community might be, well, you know, and I, and I think that it could be similar when directed at an organization like Hillel at college, right? Well, it's all well and good that these folks are staying connected to Judaism during this time in their life, but what do they do afterwards, you know, and are, are, is it working to connect them into our organizational infrastructure, or is there some other way that they're Jewishly connecting in their lives that doesn't go through the institutional infrastructure or, you know, what do we sort of, what can we expect from this population next? And I guess that's one question. And the other is um, whether you have thoughts on, in a sense, what does the success of Moisha House represent for maybe ways of organizing Jewish life for age demographics that are other than the, you know, 22 to 30 age demographic? The big measure for success for us is are people are people who come to Moisha House getting involved in Jewish life outside of Moisha House that they discovered um, by by initially coming and and so we do twenty percent of our programs in partnership with other organizations because we know that if they just do Moisha House that doesn't really solve a problem. They it's a short-term, it's a short-term answer. And so two-thirds of the people coming to Moisha House have gotten actively involved in other Jewish organizations and activities that they learned about or discovered through Moisha House. So that's really super important. We've seen something like Mishkan in Chicago, where you are, Dan. When it was starting, there were services in the living room of the Moisha House, and it so quickly outgrew that into a phenomenon that has been amazing to watch. I'm thinking about organizations like Moisha House, which is fundamentally about programming in homes, whether you're subsidizing the rent of those homes or or, or, or not. Um, and then there's organizations like Keva, which has Jewish learning in, in homes and facilitates Jewish learning in homes. There's One Table, which is now focusing on growing the number of people having Shabbat dinners for their friends in homes. Um, Hello Mazel, which is now sending Jewish stuff into people's homes to better facilitate their Jewish living. You know, and, I, and, and other uh, things like that. I'm just sort of wondering if that's something that you think actually represents a shift in American Judaism or whether you actually see that as really just sort of a launch pad and, and ultimately the idea is to shift that activity out into communal spaces and, and sort of like a, as it has been. I think that the direction of the buildings that we've built um, was coming from a really good place. And and I think the challenge becomes uh, when you have an idea and you want to run that idea and it doesn't cost too much money, being able to say yes and running with it. What I see is that the, the institutions that have invested so heavily in the buildings um, and the spaces, the, the challenge is just the cost. The challenge is just really the cost of maintaining those spaces and knowing that half a million dollars a year may be going just for the upkeep of a space, and and that becomes a challenge when you're trying to innovate. When 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 you're when when the nut becomes so big, um, 
even if it's for the right reasons. And so um, you can get bogged down in having an amazing philanthropist who helps build something terrific, but then the question becomes who's maintaining it? And it's a very big challenge to go to another generation and say, hey, you didn't build this, but our expectation is you're going to maintain it, which is sort of the less fun part and less interesting part. And so I think what you're saying is a lot of people saying, well, rather than doing that, we actually don't need that that infrastructure of space. We can just do this in our own homes and, and living rooms. And when we need a larger space once in a while, we can just rent it out. And uh, I think it, it, it's really coming out of just the simplicity of it. Yeah, I I, I think you're totally right. And I, I mean, for me to put my thoughts in it, I think there was a long time where where having a space for Jews was an incredibly important statement. Like just and, – and and I experienced this in the South when I was living there. Like all of the synagogues – not all, but many of them are right on Main Street in the middle of these cities. And there's a reason for that is that these Jews in you know mid-19th century, even into the early 20th, they wanted to say, look, we're here and, and we are, you know, side by side with generally Christian neighbors um, – and that space, it took on a meeting much more than just, you know, the walls around the walls and the rooms that were contained in the space. Um, and I think that what you've discussed and what I see with Jews my age is that we don't really have that feeling anymore. There's no sense in us that like there's this inherent special nature to possess to possessing a building. We don't care where a program happens if it's a good program. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And also and also as 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 the buildings have been around long enough, you also um start to create all sorts of policies and procedures around them. And I remember in Santa Barbara, uh we were working on someone had, you know, made a donation to build a teen lounge. So you know, they built a uh, a teen lounge at the at the Federation, but the Federation had certain policies. It was only open from like eight thirty to five o'clock Monday through Friday. So <laughs> that happens to be the same time that people are in school or in after school stuff. And so I I asked if I could, you know, use it on the Sundays to lead some programs for teenagers. And there were so many policies and procedures around time and a half for staff, who was going to be, who's allowed to have a key, not a key, um, opening it up. And these are all very practical, well-intentioned issues. But at the end of the day, I'm not sure a teenager ever went in the teen lounge. And it's really interesting to me to think more broadly about what Moisha House has kind of discovered in the space of uh, young adults and potentially thinking about how that applies to spaces at all ages and to say, well, fundamentally, it's really important that we find ways of creating rich, meaningful, deep Jewish experiences, but in ways that are economically much, much less expensive than um, what needs to be done through existing Jewish institutions. Well, you know, one of the things we haven't seen, which has been disappointing, is economies of scale. I mean, in the nonprofit space, and I don't know if it's nonprofit or Jewish nonprofit, but, but, but we sort of felt like our cost per participant would go down over time, and it, and it hasn't. And a lot of that reasoning is that, like, when we were able to start, it was just a bunch of 24-year-olds 
you know, trying to make this thing work. And, and now we're, you know, spending more time thinking about um, upper level management, um, proper insurance and training and, um, you know, just cost of doing business at that level, fundraising, um, you know, it, 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 it sort of increases. So we're, we're working hard to ensure that, you know, we're making decisions and, and, and doing things in a way where, you know, you don't wake up one day and say, wow, in order just to turn on the light, it costs more than the actual program itself. And then the other part, I think, is, is this idea of like a large tent versus lots of tents. And we've gone down the road of lots of tents. So one way to grow moisture house in a city would be to have a larger moisture house. And another way would be to have more moisture houses. And we've really gone down the path of more moisture houses because once you start getting larger in one space, it actually becomes incredibly expensive. And I think not only incredibly expensive, but also challenging to meet everyone's needs. It's easier, you know, each house has a personality. And many of the houses that have opened in cities where there's an existing house have come from people who said, hey, I love Moisha House. I love the model. I went to I went to the house. And, you know, it really wasn't for me. It wasn't what I was looking for. But my friends and I, we'd love to create something that is still Moisha House, but you know, we, we do things a little differently. And and that's been like a beautiful way to expand is to be able to say to those folks, yeah, let's 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 do that. What we're trying to create is the framework. I uh, remember being at a meeting with you years ago um, with a bunch of highly experienced Jewish leaders of various kinds. And we were going around the table talking about organizations. And, and I think you just sort of casually mentioned that at Moisha House, you um, had all kinds of Jewish education going on for your staff. Like there was, um, I think, a staff communal learning once a week. And, and I think then you said you had a rabbi on staff who spent an hour one-on-one with each staff member working on an individualized Jewish learning program for that person over the course of the the time that they would be working at Moisha House. And I remember the mouths dropped open of everybody around the room, you know, who were all running organizations of similar scale who who were not doing that. And um, uh, and I I think that um, somebody asked you, maybe it was me, you know, well, how did you come to this idea of having this investment in learning for the whole staff? And you just said... um, well, I, we were just kind of thinking that um, here we were running a Jewish organization and we didn't necessarily know that much about uh, Judaism, and so we ought to be learning. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think the same is true around Jewish education as it is around service work. Uh, we also um, work to have monthly service projects that we're going and volunteering during the day, during our staff time, um, to go get involved. I think it opens up your eyes, both on the Jewish education and the service. If we go into everything that we're doing, being the first to say with a big smile on our faces, we don't know what we're doing, but we're going to do our best and we're going to have fun with it. And so given the idea that we're not, we're not coming in saying, hey, we know everything about what there is to do here, we're, we're constantly trying to figure out how to improve ourselves. And, and improving ourselves means as a group, but also individually. So um as as part of the Moisha House staff, now that we're doing learning retreats, um, 
we encourage and support and pay for um, people to go to at least a learning retreat every year so that they're getting that experience. In addition to that, when we do our all-staff um, training, uh, we build in Jewish education, and it's not enough to say we value it. It's important to show how we're doing it, supporting individually and as a group. I'm wondering if you could think about, you know, what is it about you that allowed you to create this organization, and, and what do you see in others that um, are doing similar kind of work at that level? I think it's a couple things. One is that I think you have to care. Even if you have all the right elements and you just don't care, you're never going to work on the problem, so it, it, it becomes a non-issue. So you have to care. And, and where that comes from is going to be different for everyone. Uh, you know, whether that's, for me, my grandparents uh, coming over after the Holocaust and, and spending every Sunday at their home and having that experience of sort of people who had to really fight um, and, and lose everything for their Judaism to when I was in college and my dad got sick going and applying for a Hebrew free loan and the committee coming back, an anonymous group of people coming back and saying, rather than giving you a, a loan, we're going to actually give you a grant for your tuition for the last two years of school as long as you commit to continue volunteering and working in the Jewish community. And it's a, it's a whole set of experiences that, that make you care, and it's going to be different for each person. So one is I think you have to care. Two is that I I think you have to be solving a problem for yourself. So um, to, to sit around and talk about what young Jews should be doing or shouldn't be doing, I'm not sure it gets us very far. But when you have a group of young Jews saying, wow, I'm too old for college stuff, I'm too young for young adult stuff, what's there for me? And solving a problem for ourselves sets a, uh, you know, in a really important way of, of thinking about it. So, so I, I think that matters a lot. Just in terms, I mean, one of the things that I've always been um, really interested and impressed by is is your process. And again, I'm trying to figure out the extent to which it comes from you and your approach or whether it comes from just the fact of being a startup and not having a lot of um, infrastructure. But I also remember being at another meeting with you where you were showing everybody your Mintranet, which was like your internal website that was a way of uh, the houses putting in their expenses and getting their reimbursements and, and stuff like that. And again, I remember everybody's mouth dropping open around the room that you had such a website. And um, somebody asked, like, how did you make this website, you know, on the thinking that like this would be, you know, tens of thousands of dollars of development costs, you know, for your typical Jewish organization that they could never afford. And you said something like, well, I had a buddy that was really good at computers and, you know, we just sort of stayed up late one night and he sort of threw this thing together, you know, and somehow I felt like that comment and that sort of it was just captured something really deep about, you know, both the, um, ways in which when you get sort of overly institutionalized, you know, there are possibilities that you simply can't exploit because they don't sort of fit with with your standards or maybe because you have such a beautiful building, you imagine you have to have such a beautiful website, whereas if you're just a kind of scrappy startup organization, you can have a scrappy startup website that's also incredibly functional. You know, one of the things that Lex and I are exploring is this idea that comes out of the disruptive innovation literature that that talks about how if you're working with a population that up till now has been 
a non-consuming population, right? That in certain ways their standards are are lower, uh, not in ways that sort of say they're they're content with mediocrity. They're they're not, but they want their excellence on, for example, content, and they don't necessarily care so much about you know the the bells and whistles. On the internet side of things, I do think it's a good example for a larger thing that's been happening within Mushas. I mean, when we were trying to figure out who we want to be on the presence, like if you wrote down on paper, and we had this conversation, if we, if you wrote down all the functions you'd want on your homepage, you would end up with Yahoo. You got your weather, you have your news, you have your sports, you have your everything. But the reality is all we need is Google. You're just searching for something. And so we made it really clear that like we, if you, if you sit down and whiteboard and map out all the things that you'd need, you'd end up with Yahoo. But, but, but the reality is that we were trying to create just what you need, just what you need. And that's it. Bells and whistles actually are negative. We just want, we, we, we just want to get you from point A to point B because we, it, it was more about getting the job done that needed to get done. And that was how we built our back end. And, and it's worked incredibly well. Are there certain days, certain times where like if it had this function, things could be a little easier? Yes. But, I don't think that's come close to outweighing the fact that it's just, you know, quick and dirty and done. And, um, you know, I think that the, the other piece that comes up for me when you were you know, asking this question is, is, is really around, are you trying to solve problems? Are you trying to think about things in a meeting in your office? Or are you trying to think about them out loud um, in an open space? And, and one of the things that we've worked really hard to do is be transparent and authentic. Like when we raise a lot of money, tens of thousands of dollars um, a year from the residents and the participants, in addition to their rent subsidy and all those things. So from from the organization, it's close to $2 million a year that's coming in from the, from the residents' rent portions, plus about $60,000 in donations and, and, and one of the things that we do is when we have the residents all together once a year, we sit down and we go line by line in the budget because it's totally unfair to ask someone to give and participate in something where they have no idea where their money is going or, or what it's needed for. And so, you know, I, I, I think one of the big lessons that we can all sort of learn together is that if we're trying to engage this population and this generation, like we're going to have to be overly transparent and overly authentic. And, and, if, and, and if it means that budgets are sort of only for the executive committee of the board and, you know, we're keeping all these things sort of hidden in private, people don't want to get involved in that because they can't really feel a sense of ownership and commitment to something that they don't know about. Well, thank you so much for being with us, and um, thanks so much for what you've done with Moisha House. I mean, for me personally, Moisha House has been this beacon of possibility in this landscape over the last decade, and um, I hope that it remains that um, and and grows and is more successful. And also, people look carefully at Moisha House and and think about ways in which what you've done and the way you've done it can be translated into other aspects of, of Jewish life in America. So thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you, guys. I couldn't agree with Dan Moore. It's been great having you on the show, and it's been even greater to have Moisha House's contributions to American Judaism.
We want to close our episode by inviting our listeners to be in touch with us. We love hearing from you. And there's a few ways that you can do that. First is through our Facebook page, Judaism Unbound. Second is through our website, JudaismUnbound.com. And last but not least, you can hit us up at our email addresses, lex at nextjewishfuture.org and dan at nextjewishfuture.org. And if you want to learn more about Moisha House, definitely check out their website, which you can find at moishahouse.org. With that, this has been Judaism Unbound.